22. 1 Kings chapter 22. And uh, we're continuing looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly, looking at the kings of uh, Israel and Judah. Um, and again, like I said last time, I'm not going to put and go through these kings every single week um, because you know we're going to have almost 40 kings to get through and by the last message, it's going to probably take us the whole sermon just to get through the names. Um, but I'm, I am going to put these up just to kind of show you um, where they fit in the timeline. So last week, we looked at Jehoshaphat, and we saw that he was a king of compromise. Um, he was a good king, and, and there isn't a lot, um, you know, that, that the Bible says is bad about him, but we do see some of the, the compromising steps that he made. There were three statements we looked at. First of all, we saw that he strengthened himself against Israel. That is, he kind of protected his nation. He taught the word of God throughout the southern kingdom of Judah. But then he aligned himself. And what that basically meant was he, he made a marriage alliance between Ahab. He allowed Ahab's daughter to marry his son. So he aligned himself. Um, and then um, we saw that he made a, um, a bigger alignment then um, with Ahab's son, Isaiah, and he joined himself. So you saw kind of the steps that he strengthened himself then. It kind of, he, he aligned himself, but it didn't affect him directly. He kind of made a, you know, an alignment through his son, and then eventually he joined himself. So you could kind of see the steps of compromise. It doesn't take long for us to be strengthened against the world, to then align with the world, to then, before we know it, to be fully joined with the world. Um, so we, again, as good a king as Jehoshaphat was, he still, there were those moments in his life where he kind of, slipped up. And I think it's, you know, a reminder to us that we never become so overconfident in our walk that sin won't ever affect our lives, that we feel that we are so close to God that the world won't be able to affect us, that Satan can't get through to us, and we are invincible. We always need to be on our guard when it comes to protecting our walk with the Lord. So Jehoshaphat was the second of the eight good kings that we're going to see come out of the southern kingdom of Judah. None of the kings that we're going to look at in the northern kingdom of Israel are good. They're all bad and ugly. Um, and they, at the moment, are getting worse and worse and worse with every passing king. The interesting thing is, is if you, what you'll find is that, is that kings tends to focus upon the northern kingdom of Israel and only really mentions the southern kings um, when they, they have an interaction with the northern kings. Chronicles, if you remember from the first time we looked at this, Chronicles focuses on David's dynasty. So it's more focused upon the southern kingdom. And um, we notice that these names in the northern kingdom, um, Jeroboam and Nadab, father and son, Baasha and Elah, father and son, from a different dynasty, uh, Zimri, or Zimri was on his own. Uh, he was a servant of Elah, so that's uh, another king from another family. And then Omri and Ahab and Ahaziah, and uh, we're going to look at Ahaziah's brother um, probably next week. They are from a different dynasty. So you see the dynasty changing all the time in the northern kingdom. Whereas the southern kingdom, it's David's dynasty. Um, from, the, you know, from the moment the kingdom split with uh, Rehoboam, right up until we see the, the, the Jehoiakim and we see the, the nation being carried away to Babylon. So we're looking at Ahaziah today. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 22, 51 to 53 as our starting text. But we're going to be in 2 Kings um, to look at how Ahaziah is the king of fallen. The king of falling. First Kings 22 verse 51 says, Ahaziah, uh, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years. So if you remember from here, Ahaziah reigns towards the end of Jehoshaphat's reign in the 17th year and reigns for two years. So we're going to see Ahaziah and his brother overlap the reign of Jehoshaphat. So he reigned for two years over Israel, and verse 52 says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother. And that's an interesting phrase there, that he not only walked in the way of his father Ahab, 
who we know was wicked, but he walked in the way of his mother. And we said that Ahab ruled Israel, but Jezebel ruled Ahab. Um, and it, it's an interesting phrase that he walked in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam. What a, you, you talk about Hebrews chapter 11 and the hall of faith. You, you talk about a, you know, a hall of villainy here with him being compared to Ahab, Jezebel, and Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God. And again, we see yet another king who is provoking the Lord to anger, uh, according to all that his father had done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this day and for this time together. And Lord, even though we keep looking at these wicked kings, and and even when we think things couldn't possibly get any worse, we see that they do. uh, We recognize the fact that there is so much that we can learn uh, from these ungodly lifestyles, that we can learn from these ungodly decisions. And Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. How incredible, you know, that when we look at the life of Ahab and Jezebel and Ahaziah, uh, that in those periods of darkness, you have uh, a light shining through in in the way of uh, Elijah and Elisha and Micaiah and Jehu, these prophets, Lord, who stood out in such a dark and desperate and wicked time. And Lord, we might at moments in our our lives feel uh, like our light is being snuffed out, but as dark as the world may get around us, that's the opportunity for our lights to shine even brighter than before. So Lord, would you help us uh, as we look at the various falls that we see in this chapter, Uh, and I pray that you would help us to recognize the fact uh, that we too uh, could quite easily fall spiritually if we fail to keep our eyes fixed firmly upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you speak to our hearts today? We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at three falls in uh, 2 Kings um, chapter 1. And the first fall we see is that the king falls. And this uh, is a picture of pride. We see in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 1 that uh, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And it says in verse 2 that Isaiah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and sent, uh, said unto them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. Ahab was gone. Isaiah has taken the throne. And you think, why don't these children learn anything from the mistakes of their parents? And it just kind of re-emphasizes the importance of us as parents doing the right thing. Uh, you know, and, and, and listen, all we can do is, is train our children up in the way that they should go, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All we can do is is walk worthy of the vocation with which we've been called. All we can do is live our lives in a way that is a testimony to our kids. If, for whatever reason, our children don't follow that, we as parents have done everything that we can possibly do to impart that spiritual um, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, lifestyle onto our kids. But if we live a hypocritical life, if we treat church in a way that it doesn't matter if I go or not, it's an optional thing to do on a Sunday. If we treat sin lightly, uh, that we talk against it in church, but we kind of allow it at home, then we can't be frustrated when our children follow that type of example. Uh, You wonder why, and it's not always the case. You can have good parents and bad kids. We see that in the case of Samuel. Samuel was an incredible prophet, and yet one of the reasons why Israel uh, wanted a king was because of Samuel's children. But we also see that you know, you can have a bad um, example as a parent and still be a good person. We see that in um, uh, Asa as, as being a good king um, in Israel and yet not having the example of a godly parent. Um, why didn't Isaiah learn? And, and you think about it, what, what does it say that um, pride goes before destruction? And a haughty spirit 
before a fall. I know that we have, have kind of abbreviated that a little bit to say the pride goes before a fall, but that's kind of, you know, what happens. We, we see that. We, we see pride is never a good thing. And when we are lifted up in pride, I can promise you this, God will bring you back down to earth uh, with a bump. He'll bring you back down to reality with a bump. We are told that Isaiah falls through the lattice work in his, in his upper bedchamber. And the lattice work is literally what you think of. It's like a crisscross pattern of, of wood. Uh, I don't know whether he stepped on something, whether he's leaned on something, but he's fallen through and, and he is not in a good shape. And we see a variety of falls in the Bible, whether they be physical falls or whether they be spiritual falls. We see the fall of Lucifer from heaven. Again, perfect picture of pride. We see the spiritual fall of Adam's sin that condemned the whole human race. And can I say this? That was nothing but pride. Because Eve saw the fruit, saw that it was good, wanted it, and basically lifted themselves up rather than listening to what God had told them in the first place. We see Eli's fall when he hears that the ark is taken. Again, we look at a picture of pride. Well, we've got the ark of God. We'll take it into battle regardless of how wicked we live in our lives. We've got the ark of God. That is a, a lucky charm. And Eli falls. We see the falls the fall of the walls of Jericho. Again, that was a city built on pride. Nothing can destroy this city. But God made short work of that with just a few blasts of the trumpet and some people um, you know, doing some cardiovascular work uh, for a couple of days. Whether it's a spiritual fall or a physical fall, they alter the direction of our lives. And sometimes, you know, we will fall spiritually. We will stumble, you know, and I'm sure any of you who've ever walked somewhere have suddenly thought that the pavement has just jutted up for a few inches or, you know, suddenly your shoes have got a little bit bigger. How many of you have ever tripped over your own feet? You know, it, it, I am a nervous wreck when Joe and I go for a walk because cause of her back, the one, the one leg doesn't lift up as good as the other leg, so it, it almost drags a little bit. And she trips all the time. And I think I do more damage to her because if we're holding hands, I kind of yank her a bit and I'm like, oh, stop falling. But all of us have fallen at some point where we've tripped over our own feet. Um, or we've come up onto the platform here and forgot that there's a little raised step right there. Now, how many people have fallen, I can name two right off the top of my head, but there's so many people, Pastor Ed, I know has fallen down here, I know Dad and Len have fallen at times coming up here, and I'm sure um, maybe we've done it when there's been nobody in the church, and you've thought, oh, I'm so glad I didn't do that on Christmas Eve when the church is full. But as common as it is to fall physically for us when we walk in, safe to say that each and every one of us at some point has fallen spiritually. But John says this, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. Yes, we probably will fall spiritually, but we just need to remember that if we walk in the light, if we stick with the Lord, if we follow his lead, if we hold his hand, when we do fall, his blood is, still has the power to cleanse. Again, I know a lot of people don't like the, the King James, and I, oh, it's too archaic. But the blood of Christ cleanseth. Every time you see that TH, it's in the perfect present tense. That means it continually cleanses. It didn't just cleanse at Calvary. It cleanses now. It'll cleanse tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. It cleanseth. The blood of Christ cleanseth. We sing it the song, the blood will never lose its power. You know, this fall that the king had wasn't just an accident. If you remember back in 1 Kings 21, um, Ahab was told, listen, your family is going to be wiped out because of your wickedness. We often think that men who are powerful and influential get away with everything. We see the world getting away with so much today. 
But we need to recognize the fact that instead of being disheartened, we need to realize that at some point, they will give an account to God. God will have the final say. And the powerful and influential and wicked people may seem to be invincible and untouchable and indestructible, but we are told that one day everyone will appear before a holy God and give an account. You know, you think of Goliath. Goliath terrorized Israel for 40 days saying, come on, send a champion. And everybody in the army of Israel thought there is no way we can go up against that man. He's too big. He's too powerful. God had somebody in store. He was just a little teenage shepherd boy that would bring Goliath down a peg or two. Haman's plot to destroy Mordecai and the Jewish people. This guy was unstoppable. You know, he, uh, he had the year of the king. He, there was nothing he could do. And, and what did God use to bring him down to earth? It wasn't a, a, a Jewish girl who happened to be the, uh, the, the queen. It, it wasn't Mordecai who, who, who happened to, uh, to be in the right place at the right time. It was a sleepless night. If it wasn't for that sleepless night, the king would never have gone back to the records to find out that it was Mordecai that foiled a plot to kill him. And he would have had Mordecai lifted up and then Esther had an opportunity to go in before the king and Haman's plot was brought to naught. The evil schemers that plotted to destroy Daniel, we'll get him. We'll make a law that nobody can pray to anybody other than the king. Persian law, you could not change it. You know, that's what we saw in the case of Esther. They couldn't change the fact that the law was written that all the Jews could be, could be destroyed. The same with Darius. He's like, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing we can do. We can't change this law. You've prayed to God, therefore you've got to go into the lion's den. Can I say this to you? That Daniel had a far better sleep that night than the king did. Ahab. Ahab was very wicked. We saw last week how, we made, how Jehoshaphat made that alliance with Ahab. And if you remember, Jehoshaphat went to fight with Ahab. And what did Ahab do? He disguised himself. Let's dress Jehoshaphat up as the king, and I'll disguise myself. So nobody will, will even think of attacking me. You'd think, this guy's unstoppable. And it was a stray arrow that took out Ahab. Isaiah was given the red light when he fell through this window. And you would have thought at that point, you would have said, okay, Lord, I remember what Elijah said to my father, so I better listen to this. Those who are wicked do not get away with their treachery. Matthew Henry put it this way, he is never safe who is God's enemy. And you know what? Before you were saved, you were the enemy of God. Uh, the Lord made that quite clear. Before you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were of your father, the devil. And I can promise you this. That's an enemy of God. He is never safe who has God for an enemy. Psalm uh, 37, 9 to 10 says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall, shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. Isaiah is obviously concerned about his health. So what does he do? Does he call upon the God of Israel to say, right, okay, I, look, he's obviously getting my attention here. I need to put this right. I need to, I, I need to get my heart right. Things have not gone right for my family. Uh, I recognize that. Um, so I'm going to call upon the Lord. So who does he call upon? Baal Zebub. Um, Baal Zebub means Lord of the Flies. Um, many plagues were caused by flies that feasted on carrion and dung and flesh. And uh, this pagan idol was meant to be to have control over all of them. Um, Baal Zeba was looked upon as the god of medicine or healing to those who worshipped it. Um, those who worshipped God mocked this idol, and they actually uh, referred to it as Baal Zebel. Uh, which meant not Lord of the Flies, but Lord of the Dung. And in the New Testament, we probably have a kind of recognition of, I've heard this name before. Uh, this was actually a reference made to the Lord Jesus Christ, where they said, you only do this by Beelzebub. Um, and that was a, a reference to Satan, the prince of 
um, devils. Um, so Ahaziah doesn't call upon the Lord, but he calls upon this um, false god. And in verse 3, it says, The angel of the Lord said unto Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, It is not because there is it not because there is no God in Israel that ye go to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shall surely die, and Elijah departed. From what the angel of the Lord said here to Elijah, he says, now because you've inquired of Baal-zebub, you're not going to come down off this bed. I honestly believe that if Isaiah had repented, he would have had the opportunity to come down off that sickbed and to be a king that God could have used uh, to bless the nation. Now we know, he goes without saying, um, that the scripture says, thou shall have no other gods before me. God is a jealous God. He's not an envious God. He's not envious of something that doesn't belong to him. He is jealous. Jealousy is when you are jealous over something that is yours. Israel belonged to God. Their devotion, worship, and, and any glory that they give belong to God. So when it says he's a jealous God, he's jealous because that belongs to him. Israel were to have no other gods. They weren't to make themselves of any graven image or worship any idols. The angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate, uh, pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ comes to Elijah and tells him what's going on behind the scenes. And God uses Elijah to intervene in Ahaziah's life. God was going to show that he was the true God. You know, it boggles my mind that Israel, time and time again, were so concerned about the idols that the other nations worshipped around them, that they neglected the very God that could actually help them, that could change their situation, that could change their circumstances, that could change their direction. And yet, time and time again, they sought a, a God that they could see, a God made with hands, an idol, a, 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 an image. You know, God is not going to share his glory with somebody else. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's the thing. You know, we, we have the opportunity to pray to God every single day. God is not going to share his glory with somebody else. Those who pray to idols today, those who pray to pagan gods, those who pray to people who have been declared saints, God's not going to be happy with that. He's not going to share his glory with somebody else. We can come boldly before the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find help in a time of need. Isaiah turns to Baal Zebub and the messengers, uh, when the messengers in verse 5 turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, and said unto us, Go turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, It is not because there is no God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore thou shalt not come down from the bed on which thou art gone up, but shall surely die. When the messengers arrived back at the palace, the king is like, Why are you back so soon? Ekron was quite a bit of a distance, and yet these men had returned way too soon. And think about it. It took a lot for these men to say to the king, actually, we've got a message for you. Um, you're going to die. That's what Elijah have said. Um, they, they didn't know it was Elijah, but this is what a man of God has said. He's, he said, you're going to die. Um, and that's a hard message to deliver. And when you think about it, you know, we have a hard message to deliver to the world. The world without Christ is headed to a Christless hell. The world without accepting Christ as their Savior is going to spend an eternity separated from God, uh, answering for their sins. And that's a hard message. 
Nobody wants to hear about the fact that they, they've sinned. Nobody wants to hear that they're not a good person. Nobody wants to hear that they're not good enough. You know, we live in a day and age where we give medals for everything. You know, we had three medals in our sports races in school, first, second, and third. You didn't have a medal for, like, taking part. You didn't have, like, a, oh, well done. You, you either won or you lost. But now, today, we kind of, we want to, oh, we don't want to, we don't hurt people's feelings. We have a participation medal. You know, let me tell you something. You do not hear anybody, after losing a game, come on TV and say, oh, yeah, well, the thing is, the most important thing is the taking part that counts. No, it's not. You know, we've got a message to deliver. The world doesn't want to hear that they're sinners. The world doesn't want to hear that God judges those who refuse to accept Christ and they end up being separated from him in a place called hell. But that's the message. As hard as it might be to deliver, we recognize the fact that it, it doesn't just end there. It is a message of hope. Because whilst man is a sinner who can't even begin to pay for their sins, God is a God of love as well as a God of justice and judgment. And he paid for the sin of the world upon the cross. You know, we have an urgent message because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. James said, where you know not what shall be on the morrow for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. We've got a message to deliver and there's an urgency behind that message. The king is curious as to who this messenger is and he said unto them in verse seven, what manner of man was he that came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, he was a hairy man, a girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And the king knew exactly who it was. He's like, oh, no. That's Elijah. I'm sure Ahaziah has been told all about Elijah. Uh, he's the one that caused my father so much hassle when he didn't reign in Israel for three and a half years. Oh, he's the one that called on fire uh, from heaven on Mount Carmel. Oh, he's the one. When the king hears the description, he knows exactly who it is. And do you know what? Maybe at that point, the king is in a state of panic. What does he do with this information? What he should have done was repented there and then. What he should have done was ask the messengers to go back and find Elijah and ask Elijah to come to show him what he needed to do to put this right. But pride does not admit fault. Pride does not say, yeah, I'm wrong. Pride says, I'm right, and everybody else is wrong. Ahaziah was basically saying, even though I'm backed into a corner, even though I know that I am doomed, even though I know that this is not good news, I am refusing to humble myself and ask for help. So the next fire, uh, the next fall we see is fire falling from heaven, which is a picture of judgment. And uh, what happens? The king sends, sends unto Elijah in verse 9 a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on top of a hill, and he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Isaiah responds by sending 51 people to get Elijah, not to ask for help, not to come and, uh, and show Isaiah what he needs to do, not to even come and pray with Isaiah. He sends 51 men to capture Elijah. And Elijah basically says, Lord, if I'm in trouble, you need to step in. And the Lord knows the intent of the king. He knows the intent of the 51 men. And as a result, the fire falls. It's ironic that the message of the world today is the same as the message to Elijah then. Satan wants us to come down. 
Nehemiah was told, come down off the wall. Stop this building work for God. You Come down off your wall. Come down. Tone down your message. Stop being so judgmental. Stop standing against sin and the need to trust in, in Christ. Slow down your work for the Lord. It's making us all look bad. Put down your Bible. Don't read it so much. Use your time for other things instead. Shut down your church. It's just a blight on the community. It's an eyesore in the community. Don't attend it. Don't support it. Stop giving to the work of it. Stop inviting other people to it. But the Bible says, cheer up. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. It says, look up. Look into that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, get up and do a work for the Lord. It says, grow up and mature in the Lord. Elijah responds to the demands to come down. And he says, Lord, if I'm in trouble, take care of me. And God sends his judgment. And you would think, again, Isaiah would think, well, right, okay, we, we need to change tack there. And he sends another captain and another 50 men again verse 11 he sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50 and he answered and said unto him O man of god thus hath the king said now they changed the wording slightly the first time they said come down and now this time he says come down quickly Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. What Ahaziah does, he does change his message, but he doesn't say to Elijah, Please come and help me. He says, You better come right now and you better do it quickly. Remember, Ahaziah is full of pride, but God still sends his judgment. Elijah calls fire from heaven and the Lord sends the fire again. And then the third and final fall that we see in this passage, it says in verse 13, and he sent a captain of the third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees. Here we see the fall of the captain. And this is one of humility. The fall of the captain is one of humility. He fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these 50 thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burned up the two captains of the former 50s with their 50s. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. The king is even more defiant than before, sends a third group of people to arrest Elijah, even though he knows 102 men have already died in following the Lord's command. You imagine what this captain was going, imagine what the thoughts going through this captain's mind. Why have I been given this task? Why am I the one that's got to lead these 50 now? I've seen what happened to the last group of people. So he approaches Elijah, and he doesn't say, come down. He doesn't say, come down quickly. He falls on his knees. This is a captain. This is somebody who is used to having his orders followed. This is somebody who is used to having men do exactly what he tells them to do. But in a picture of pure humility, he falls before Elijah The captain knows who is in charge. He calls Elijah a man of God. He treats him with respect, with reverence. And we see his humility as he falls to the floor. It's amazing what can happen in our lives when we have more of a humble spirit. James says, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace. To the humble. James goes on to say, Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he shall lift you up. When you are full of pride, God will bring you down. But when you are humble, God will always lift you up. The captain asked Elijah to consider his life precious and valuable. He didn't want to die like the others. 
He was asking that his life be spared, not because Ahaziah was in control, but because this captain knew that God was in control. The angel of the Lord says to Elijah in verse 15, go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. The angel of the Lord gives Elijah the green light to go with the captain and to not be uh, afraid. And God continues to direct Elijah. He does the same thing for us too. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Elijah then comes before the king and delivers the same message. He says to the king in verse 16, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shall surely die. How Elijah could have changed the message as he stood before the king. It was easy to give that message to you know, to, uh, to, to, to other people. But now we stand him face to face with the king and he gives the exact same message that the Lord had given him. You know, the problem is with the world today and the church today, we change the message that God has given to us because we don't want to upset people. We don't want to offend people. We want people to come to church. We don't want to push people away from church. Hey, listen, I've said this time and time again. We can have a church filled of people that just are having their ears tickled. That's not going to make a blind bit of difference on the day of judgment when they stand before the great white throne and say, what? I didn't realize I was a sinner. I was always told that everybody's good enough to go to heaven. I, I was always told that, you know, it wasn't sin. It was just a, you know, like a, a lifestyle choice. It was just how I was born. It was how I was wired. I haven't heard this message before. Yeah, we can have the church full of people just getting their ears tickled. But that's not the message that God has given us. Elijah could quite have easily have changed that message, but he didn't. He was instant, in season, and out of season. He reproved and he rebuked. Isaiah had the opportunity through the long-suffering and exhortation of the message to accept the, uh, you know, to put things right and call upon the true God of Israel. Truth never changes. Truth will always be truth. Nobody can ever say, oh yeah, well the thing is, you know, this, this has got to keep up with the times. If it was truth back then, it's truth now. The truth does not change. Untruth alters all the time. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. We are to share the gospel. And yes, it will offend some people, it is offensive. To some people. But the truth never changes. The king considered God as nothing. The king wasn't. He didn't seem to have a fear of the Lord. Which is the beginning of wisdom. He would much rather pray to an idol. To something that didn't exist. Than pray to the true God of Israel. Thou shalt worship no other gods, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Do we snub the Lord in our lives sometimes because there's something better to do? Something more important to do than give the Lord his proper place in our lives? We, we need to recognize this. God is a jealous God. Remember I said God, jealousy is a good thing. Envious, envy is a bad thing. Being envious is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. Or, you know, being envious of somebody having something that doesn't belong to you. Jealousy is when something does belong to you. And, and the only way I can kind of describe this was kind of if husband and wife are joined together, one flesh. If the husband sees the wife flirting with somebody or somebody else flirting with them... There is a jealousy 
That's a good thing. You all know Joe is a jealous person. If I go and see a doctor, if that doctor is a woman and she has touched my arm, Joe's a jealous person. You all know that if I ever did anything that was untoward, I'm dead. But that's okay. The death part is not dead, good, but the jealousy part is right because... I belong to her, she belongs to me. That's what God has done in, in uniting us in marriage. God is a jealous God. Just as he was jealous over Israel, we belong to him. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have been bought with a price. I can promise you this. When we snub God, he is still a jealous God. When we snub him, when we feel like church is unimportant. You don't have to text me and say, oh, Pastor, I'm so sorry I can't make church today, but I've got this, 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 this. Make a blind bit of difference. He's not answering to me. You're answering to him. When we snub God and we don't pick up our Bible in the morning, when we snub God and we don't pray, when we snub God and we fail to witness, when we snub God and we kind of wander into sin willy-nilly, Remember, he's still a jealous God. Don't ever snub God because our life is too busy to do the things that God has called us to do. I want to read this ever so quickly. I know time is running out. But this unknown author wrote an article entitled Diary of a Bible. January the 10th. Been resting for a week. The first few nights of the new year, my owner read me regularly, but he has now forgotten me already, I guess. February the 7th, cleanup time. I was dusted with other things and then put back on the shelf. February the 9th, owner used me for a short time after dinner, looking for a few references. I went to Sunday school today. March the 30th, busy day. Owner had young people's meeting and had to look up references. He had an awful time finding them, but they were there all the time. May the 3rd, in grandma's lap this afternoon, she's here for a visit. She spent most of her time in 1 Corinthians 13 and the last four verses of the 15th chapter caught one of her tears on my page. May the 7th, 8th, 9th, in grandma's lap again this afternoon, she spent most of her time reading and sometimes she just talks to me. It's so comfortable here. May the 10th, grandma's gone back to the same old place. She did kiss me goodbye before she left. July the 3rd, had a couple of four-leaf clovers stuck in me today. July the 4th, packed in a suitcase with clothes and other things. Off on a holiday, I guess. July the 7th, still in the suitcase. July the 10th, still in the suitcase, though everything else has been taken out. July the 15th, home again in my old place. Quite a nice journey, they say, though I did not see why. August the 1st, rather stuffy and hot. Have two magazines, a novel and an old hat on top of me. September the 20th, used by Mary for a few minutes today. She was writing a letter to a friend whose brother died and wanted appropriate verses. October the 10th, wish someone would take these stinking four-leaf clovers out to me. They are tickling me like crazy. November the 29th, was taken to church today. September the 31st, end of another year. Not interesting for me, maybe next year. God's word does not return void. God said to Ahab, Ahab, I'm going to take care of your family, not in a good way. They had the opportunity to repent, but they didn't. And in verse 17, it says that Ahaziah died not as a result of his wounds, but according to the word of the Lord. The word of God was fulfilled. God says that he will do something. You can guarantee 100% that he will do it. What is tr was true then is true now. God's word is true. It doesn't matter what the world says about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ is still without sin. Christ is still virgin born. Christ is still uh, the only hope of salvation. Christ's death upon the cross is still the only way for man to be saved. There's not many ways to heaven. There's one. That truth never changes. The truth of the fact that the the world is going to go through a terrible period of time known as the tribulation will not change. The fact that Christ is going to come back for his church in what's known as the rapture is not going to change. The fact that Christ is going to come back... uh, at the end of the tribulation period that known as the millennial reign of Christ is not going to change no matter what the world says or does God's word doesn't change it never will heaven and earth will pass away but God's word will remain truth never changes don't make the mistake that Isaiah made Maybe you're watching online today and you've rejected God and you feel like he's got nothing to offer you and it's just a bunch of baloney and it's just a fairy tale. Can I say this to you? Do not reject the Lord. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. God's word will be fulfilled to the letter. It's not a message that needs to be altered. It's just a message that needs to be proclaimed. Isaiah fell because of his pride and he refused to humble himself. The fire fell because of judgment. And I say this to you, the only thing to come after pride is judgment. Satan was judged because of his pride and he fell from heaven. Man is judged because of their pride in refusing to bow the knee to God and they will answer for their sins and Spend all eternity paying for them. But the captain fell because he recognized that there was something different in Elijah. That it wasn't the king that was in charge. The king was on his deathbed looking for some kind of help, anything. But Elijah's king was different. And the captain fell because of his humility. When we humble ourselves in the sight of God, God will lift us up. Don't feel like we are untouchable in our walk with the Lord because we are going to stumble along our way. But we need to recognize the fact that God has us by the hand. So don't try and pull away from him like youngsters do when they cross the road. Hold on to it even tight there. Because the closer we get to his return, the more difficult it's going to be to live the life of a believer in this world. So hold tight. Don't give up. Don't come down. Don't tone down. Don't step down. Don't tear down. Look up. Don't give up. The Lord is coming back. That is our hope. And I'm thankful that he's coming back for us. Father, we thank you again for this day, for this time together this morning, for this opportunity to come around you a word. Lord, I just prayed you would continue to speak to our hearts as we come around you a table in a little while. We just prayed you would continue to help us as we remember what took place upon the cross of Calvary for our sins. Father, we are just so grateful for the privilege that we have to be able to serve you. Help us to never take that privilege for granted. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's most precious and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Ask the men to come forward at this time as we come around the Lord's table. It's incredible when you think of who the Lord Jesus Christ was, that he was God in the flesh. When you think of the miracles that he had performed, when you think of the blind men that had their sight restored, when you think of the lame men that walk, when you think of the dead men that were raised to life, when you think of the way in which the Lord controlled the elements as he walked on the water of Galilee, as he calmed the storm and told the wind um, to be quiet, He was God in the flesh, and yet we recognize the fact that he humbled himself 
that he left the glories of heaven to take on the form of man, to live a sinless, perfect life so that he could fulfill the law of God that no man could keep, so that the law being fulfilled, sin could be paid for once and for all. You see, I think, on this night that the Lord is betrayed, we remember, um, you know, the table as we come around the elements, but I think one of the the greatest acts of humility took place on that night when the Lord Jesus Christ knelt on the floor and washed the feet of his disciples. I wonder if Judas ever thought, what am I doing? Have I made the right choice? As the Lord Jesus Christ washed that traitor's feet, or did that just cause Judas even more uh, hatred towards the Savior? Or did that cement the fact that I've definitely made the right call because this man is not going to save Israel? In that one act of humility, the Lord Jesus Christ proved that he was the exact perfect person to go to the cross of Calvary, to pay for the sins of the whole world. How incredible that the most powerful person, if I can put it that way, on the planet was the most humble person on the planet. He humbled himself to go to the cross of Calvary for you. And when we come around the table today, we remember that the Lord gave his life for us in absolute humility. On that night that the Lord is betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it. We recognize that the bread is a picture of the Lord's body that was broken for us. And I wonder if Julian would ask a blessing on the bread. night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed he took the bread after he had blessed it and broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance of me
that night that the Lord is betrayed, he has a blessing on the cup, which was a picture of his blood that would be spilt. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Sin cannot be dealt with without blood being shed. When the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary, every drop was spilt so that our sin could be covered, that our sin could be paid for once and for all. I wonder if that asks a blessing on the cup. Our loving Heavenly Father, as we've been reminded in our hymns today, <clears throat> it was that wonderful love, the wonderful love that took our Lord and Saviour to that cross. That cross that represents so much. A cross that saw the blood of our Lord and Saviour being spilt. Of being spilt willingly. In the knowledge that it was going to cleanse the sins of the world. It's going to cleanse all those who turn their eyes towards him. And Heavenly Father, all these years later, we are reminded of that amazing sacrifice, that willing sacrifice that was made for each and every one of us. So that we can look to the future with joy. Look to the future with hope, Heavenly Father. Because our sins have been washed whiter than snow by that amazing blood. And as we take this cup, Heavenly Father, we are reminded of that sacrifice, of that blood that was shed for us. Amen. Retain the cup and we'll take it together. That night the Lord took the cup and blessed it and said that this cup is a picture of the new covenant of the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. He says to the disciples to drink ye all of it and we were to do this in remembrance of him. Father, again we are thankful for the privilege that we have to be able to call ourselves a child of God. Father, we're thankful for the opportunities we have to be able to call ourselves the servants of God. 
Father, we're thankful for the safety we have to be able to be able to call ourselves the bride, to be a part of the church. And none of that is possible without the shedding of your blood. And Father, we pray that you would just help us as we reflect upon all that you have done for us. And as we've said many times, if you were willing to die for us, the least that we could do is be willing to live for you. So Lord, help us to live our lives that would be pleasing to you, that would point others to you, and that would bring you glory in all that we do. And Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have today to look back to the cross of Calvary and recognize the price that you paid for us. So Lord, would you help us in our walk with you? We pray and ask these things in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close our service out by singing our last hymn. I'm not ashamed to own my Lord and we'll stand as we sing. Dave's are closing us in a word of prayer. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you for this word of prayer. We thank you for my precious word, our God. That word that was a lamp and a light into our path. We praise you for all that you do for us, our God. We praise you for our place called Calvary. We remember that in the emblems this morning, we've partaken of those emblems. We've seen again the Lord Jesus Christ. Celebrated him in his death. We praise thee that he didn't just die and remain in the grave, but he rose again, and he's at thy right hand, our God, a place where he ever liveth to intercede for us. We praise thee for him, our God, and we thank thee for all that you do for us. And we praise thee as well for all those who have heard the message this morning. We pray that you will speak to them, that they will be convicted of sin and of the righteousness of a holy God and of the judgment that is to come. Bless us.